Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. We have three chapters left in the book of Judges. Three chapters left. Each chapter that we have left, 19, 20, and 21, expresses its own literary unit. So I would love to actually do chapter 19 as a sermon, chapter 20 as a sermon, chapter 21 as a sermon. Um, We could also do it as one sermon and have these three chapters be our three main points, but that would be a lot to get through. And ultimately what I want to do is I want to wrap up the book of Judges before we enter into Palm Sunday. So April 7th will be our last sermon in the book of Judges. And I want to make sure that we do an overview of it. Because as we finish the book of Judges, we end not anywhere close to a high note. If we had ended with Samson in chapter 16, uh, maybe there would have been a little bit of a high note. Like, yes, this man called upon God in the last moments of his life and was spared uh, the the, um, terrible, devastating nature of Dagon being praised in place of Yahweh. And he cried out and God heard his cry and God hears our cry. At least there would have been somewhat of a high point. Chapter 17 and 18, as we looked at last week, is just strange. And then chapter 19 is the lowest point in this incredibly low book. Some people have called this the most horrible chapter in the Bible. Um, I have to disagree because I believe that the murder and the slaughter of the second member of the Trinity is the most horrific thing in all of the scriptures. But this is second in line. Chapter 19 is the worst chapter in the book of Judges, and second to the murder of Jesus, the worst chapter in the entire Bible. This is a devastating chapter. What would we learn from it as we read through it? Um, We need to ask God's blessing on our time to learn what he would have us learn. Because our emotional response to these verses, though right and appropriate, we want to make sure that first and foremost, we let God and his word influence, impact, and inform our emotions to what we're about to behold. So let's ask God's blessing on our time. Let's pray and plead with him to open our eyes to see what he would have us see, why he included chapter 19 in the Bible. And then let's walk through this text together. Father, we are so humbled by the fact that you would graciously give us your word. You have revealed yourself to us by speaking to us. And you have promised that this book will never go away. It will always be ours. You have revealed yourself perfectly, exactly what we need for life and godliness. And you have promised that if we cling to it, it will be a lamp to our feet, shining in a dark place. God, there are a few places in the scriptures that are darker than the place that we are going this morning. And so I pray that we would see it rightly by the lens of your word, that we'd be informed by it, that we would be quick to look inside and not to stand at a distance looking at the Gibeonites. 
May we look inside in our own hearts and see the same vile, evil wickedness that you and your grace died to free us from. Holy Spirit, I, I, I want miracles to take place in our hearts this morning to grow a greater affection for Jesus and what he did on the cross to save us from the penalty of our sin and to grow greater hatred for our sin that we would not coddle the very thing that you died to free us from. So unmask sin as you do so well in these verses. You give us a stark reality of the nature of depravity. So Spirit, be our guide. Open our eyes to behold the things that you have written and point us to Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. There are three aspects of human depravity on display in these verses. We're going to take all of chapter 19 and the first half of chapter 20. And in these verses, we will see three aspects of human depravity on display. The first is the corruption of the Levite. This is verses 1 through 10 in Judges chapter 19. The corruption of the Levite. Verse 1, now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. That's our phrase that we've seen over and over and over again. This time, the author doesn't even uh, connect it with every man did that which was right in his own eyes because, number one, he knows we would already finish that sentence in our own minds because we've seen that over and over again. No king in Israel. Everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. And what he wants us to see, he prefaces this chapter by saying, this is what life looks like when you do what you want to do, when you are your own moral standard, when everyone does that which is right in their own eyes, this is the way life looks. There's no king. Everyone's doing whatever they think is right, including this Levite. There's a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who takes a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. This shows us the utter Canaanization of Israel. Israel has officially become a pagan nation through and through because they've adopted to themselves the ways of the pagan neighboring nations around them. They had multiple wives, and so Israel takes multiple wives. But not just Israel, a priest. Supposedly, the most holy people in Israel are being Canaanized along with all of the others. Hosea tells us very clearly that like priest, like people. Like your leader, your people will become. And so this man is only doing exactly what everybody else around him is doing, and he's leading Israel into depravity. He takes a concubine that's more than just a prostitute, that's kind of a second wife to himself. So he has two wives. It's never a good thing, and... And we're going to see the way it plays itself out. One translation actually says, he acquired a wife for himself. It's a very calloused expression. He just takes a woman. He just, I want this woman and I take her for myself. But, verse 2, this woman that he takes to himself plays the harlot against him. And she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So servant and a pair of donkeys means that this is a wealthy Levite, and that informs the rest of this text because the concubine's 
father is going to be very happy that she married this Levite man. We look from the outside and we say, that's not the way a dad's supposed to act. But the dad just wants money. And this Levite has it. So she brought him in to her father's house, middle of verse 3. And when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. Instead of talking about the adulterous affair on both sides, right? That the Levite had committed adultery with the concubine and that the concubine had committed adultery against the Levite. None of that's discussed. The Levite just waits and then goes and says, I want my woman back. Verse 4, his father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Just him, the Levite and the dad. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, sustain yourself here with a piece of bread and afterwards you may go. Don't leave yet. So both of them sat down, both of them, the, the dad and the Levite. They ate and they drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him again, just stay here. Verse 8, on the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning. The girl's father said, please sustain yourself here. Wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. And when the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father said, no, the, the day is drawn to a close. Please spend the night here. Behold, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. Notice who's absent in all of these conversations. This man's daughter. So we have the corruption of this Levite completely on display. This is apparently how Levites worked back then. You can just break God's law and don't really care. And then we have a dad on display. This is a father that I would never aspire to be like. He doesn't really care about his daughter. He just is happy that he's going to be getting some income as a dowry from this very wealthy Levite. And where's the woman in all of this? She has no say in what's happening. And I think that this summarizes in this first section, this is how Levites were acting. This is how dads were treating their daughters, and this is how women were treated. This is a very strange, confusing, dark place in the scriptures. But it's going to get much, much darker. First, we see the corruption of the Levites. Secondly, we see the abomination of the Gibeonites. The abomination of the Gibeonites. The man's not willing to spend the night. This is verses 10 through verse 30, the end of chapter 19. The man's not willing to spend the night. So he arises, he departs, he comes to a place opposite Jebus, which is Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys, his concubines also with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone. And the servant said to his master, please come and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. The Jebusites owned it. It wasn't yet an Israelite place. That's why in parentheses you see it's Jerusalem now, but it wasn't yet owned by Israelites. So that's why the Levite in verse 12 says, we're not going to turn aside to a city of foreigners who are not the sons of Israel. We're not going to stay the night at a non-Israelite place. Who knows how they're going to treat us. We're going to go to an Israelite location. So we'll go to Gibeah. Verse 13, he said to his servant, come, let's approach one of these places and we'll spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. So they passed along, they went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. 
they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. So I don't want to stay at a pagan city because who knows how they're going to treat me. I want to go to an Israelite city. And they sit down, middle of verse 15, in the open square of the city, and no one took them into his house to spend the night. Remember, the Levites, they didn't have a, a tribe, a location for their tribe to stay. They didn't have a territory that belonged to the Levites. The Levites were in all of Israel. They didn't have one location. They were able to, to wander around in all of it because they were priests to the people. So they would just move around. And you, as an Israelite, were supposed to take them in. If you saw a Levite, you were to bring them in, give them food, give them lodging, and they would take care of that city to be the priest to that city. So this man walks into the middle of the city in Gibeah, and he says, somebody's going to surely see me and take me into the home. But nobody does. Verse 16. Behold, an old man was coming out from the field from his work in the evening, and the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah. So he's not from Gibeah, but he's staying there where the Benjamites live. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem and Judah. But now I'm going to, my Bible says, my house, literally, it's to the house of the Lord. I'm going to be a Levite and a priest in Shiloh to the house of the Lord. I'm going to do his work in the temple. That's a lie. He's not going there. But nobody's going to take me into his house. Nobody's taking me into his house. Again, you see the corruption of the Levite, and you see a, a time where nobody's obeying God's law. You see a Levite, you provide for the Levite, but nobody's obeying God's law. So the old man said, verse 20, Peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night here in this open square. I think that there is something there. There's a hint there that this man knows it's not good to be out here at night. This is a bad place. There's a hint there that something more dangerous than just mere indifference is happening at this city. So he took him, verse 21, into his house, gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet, they ate, and they drank. And while they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, the Gibeonites, Certain worthless fellows, sons of Belial, sons of the devil, is literally the Hebrew translation. They surrounded the house and they pounded the door. Literally, they flung their bodies at the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. And the man, the owner of the house, went out to them, and he said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man's come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here instead is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out, that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So... The Levite seized his concubine, brought her out to them, and they raped her, and they abused her all night until morning. And then they let her go at the approach of dawn. And as the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway, the threshold of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. 
When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her in a very calloused way, the way that you'd speak to an animal, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey and the man arose and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and he laid hold of his concubine and he cut her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And everyone who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or ever been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came to the land, from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. What a terrible section of Scripture. What a terrible section of Scripture. Now, I believe the author of Judges is wanting you as the reader, as you're reading through this, to have Genesis 19 ringing in your mind as you read Judges 19. Genesis 19 is very eerily familiar and similar to Judges 19. You remember Genesis 19? Angels show up at Lot's house. Lot houses them in Sodom and Gomorrah. And all the men of the city start flinging their bodies at the door, banging the door down. Let us sleep with those men, they say. And Lot says, don't don't do such a wicked act, but have my daughters instead. This is very similar. The narrator of this account is showing us that an Israelite town has become Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember this. Levites said, we're not going to stay in Jebus. We're not going to stay there because we know that's a pagan city. And who knows what pagan cities will do, but we're going to go to a safe location, an Israelite town, where they treat their people well. But there's no safety to be found in the Israelite city. They don't treat their people any differently than a pagan nation because they've become a pagan people. You can't read Judges 19 without thinking of Genesis 19. And that's precisely what the author of Judges is wanting us to do. He's wanting us to be taken back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Wicked cities that are so wicked that God said, I must destroy them. He gave them time to repent. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, he gave them 400 years to repent. They did not repent. So he destroyed them with fire and brimstone. Again, eerily familiar, he has told Israel, you need to repent or else I will destroy you. And 400 years from this act in Judges 19, Assyria is going to show up on the scene, then Babylon a couple hundred years after them, and take them away into captivity and judge them for their sin. Hosea chapter 10, verse 9. There's actually three verses in Hosea that if we had more time, we'd turn to. But just write down Hosea 10, verse 9, Hosea 9, verse 9, and Hosea 19, verse 9. They're all verse 9 in chapter 10, 9, and 19. Chapter 10 Hosea tells us that this act in Judges 19 is when God decides, I will send them into exile. This is the act that made them uh, uh, reprehensible before God, just absolutely corrupted in uh, devastating depravity. And God said, we're done, we're done. They they have turned into a pagan nation, and they are going to be put out and exiled. Hosea refers to this in chapter 9, verse 9, and chapter 19, verse 9, as the days of Gibeah. 
when Hosea just wants to say when things were at their worst. And he says, when in like the days of Gibeah. This is the lowest of the low. This is so low that Israel says to one another, nothing like this has ever been seen. Nothing like both the act that's happening and receiving limbs and a messenger a woman's body cut up into pieces. No, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. Why did the Levite do this? Why did the Levite take his concubine and cut her up into pieces? He wants to show all of Israel you have hit the lowest moral point you've ever hit before. So along with some portion of a limb, her body is sent with a messenger into all the 12 tribes to be told this is what utter depravity looks like. Now, it's easy for us. We've read through the book of Judges. We've read many places where we have laughed and we are right to do so. We've laughed. We've enjoyed places that are filled with comedy. But when you come to verse uh, to chapter 19, when you come to these final verses, there is absolutely no comedy in these verses. And just as it was appropriate for us to laugh at what was happening in some of these chapters, we must weep as we read these verses. Remember who was already mentioned in these verses. This concubine's father. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's daughter. This is a, a woman who was beloved by her family. Who knows all of the horrific treatment that she was given in that last night of her life. Raped to death. Screaming out, trying for somebody. Somebody please save me. And at last when the sun begins to rise, the men leave and she crawls her way back in blood and tears to the doorstep of the Levite's house, hoping and praying that he would open the door. And when he finally does, she has already died and he simply, as he steps over her body, says, come on, let's go, get up. So calloused. I think his own callousness on display before him, I think he sees and realizes this needs to end. We cannot be okay with this. In fact, he's going to go on to talk to the 12 tribes. He's going to say, are we okay with this? What are you going to do about this wickedness? You must do something. And it's really, again, the bookends of the opening of the book of Judges. You remember an angel showed up at the beginning of the book of Judges and said, are you going to do something about this evil and this wickedness? Repent. And here the Levite says, are we going to do something about this evil and this wickedness? So we've seen the corruption of the Levite. We see the abomination of the Gibeonites. And finally, number three, we see the retaliation of the Israelites. The retaliation of the Israelites. This is chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. So all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba came, including Gilead, and they came out and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzvah. As one man. That's, that phrase is going to show up three times in this next chapter. They come together as one man. 
I think, number one, to show us, in contrast to this woman who was dismembered, her one body dismembered and broken because of their sin, now they're going to come together as one man. But I think also to show us, there's never been a time in the book of Judges that Israel has been unified this way. There's never been a time. This is the only time. You remember Deborah. Deborah calls out a couple tribes for not showing up. Where were you when we started fighting? So here is the only time that we see all of Israel coming together. And they're coming together for a decently good reason, to take vengeance upon what had happened. But we're going to see that, number one, they can't fully come together as one man because they're going to take vengeance upon themselves, right? They have to destroy one of their own, the tribe of Benjamin. But number two, we're going to see that their retaliation goes further than simply an eye for an eye. It goes beyond that. So they come together as one man. This is going to become the largest uh, army in Israel's history in the Old Testament. And they're amassing in the largest format to fight against whom? Themselves. Their own kind. So the chiefs and all the people, verse 2, even all of the tribes of Israel, they took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mitzvah. And the sons of Israel said, tell us, how did this wickedness take place? Mr. Levite, explain what happened. We need to hear all the details. So the Levite said, the husband of the woman who was murdered, verse 4, answered, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. That's true. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me, and they intended to kill me. That's not true. That's a lie. Instead, they just so happened to ravish my concubine, and she died. That's also not the full truth. They didn't want to kill him and then instead killed his concubine. They wanted to take him and to sleep with him but he gave them his concubine. There's no mention of that. No, I did something terrible that I shouldn't have done, and I'm culpable in this as well. No, he just, he remembers his sinful past very, very nicely. So I took hold of my concubine, verse 6. I cut her in pieces. I sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they've committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Yes, they have. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. What's the point in the recounting of this Levite story? The point in recounting it is there, there are no good guys in this story at all. This was the time for him to say, I'm culpable, I'm responsible, I did something that I shouldn't have done. First, I took to myself a concubine, error number one. Second, I lied about where I was going and why I was going there. Third, instead of defending her, I defended myself by giving her to this, these wicked men. This is cowardly. We've already seen he's calloused. Get up and let's go. Just speaking so harshly. And he's not candid. He's lying here. There's no moral victors in this story. That's why I say the book of Judges ends so badly. Nobody's a hero anymore. So, verse 8. All the people rose as one man. There's our phrase again. One man. They came together. And they said, not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. 
But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We're going to take 10 men out of 100 throughout the tribes of Israel, 100 out of 1,000, 1,000 out of 10,000 to supply food for the people. When they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, that they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they've committed in Israel. There's something good about what they're saying. That deserves to be punished. But we're going to see that it's going to snowball into retaliation that is absolutely wicked as well. Thus all the men, verse 11, of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. This is a good start. Give us those men so we can punish those men. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the city on that day to the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered 700 choice men. The reason why they're choice men is they're left-handed men, verse 16 tells us, and they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. I don't know if being left-handed helps you in shooting a gun. You can ask Paul Hodgson. I don't know if right or left-handed gives you an advantage in shooting a gun, but I do know that being right or left-handed gives you a huge advantage in slinging a stone in the days of swords and shields. Because if everybody's holding a sword with their right hand and a shield on their left arm, then if you're going to fight with your right, you're going to expose that right side. And so if you have a left-handed man that can go in and slingshot you on that right side, you can absolutely do damage. And apparently these guys are so skilled they can uh, fire a stone at about 90 miles per hour at a hare and not miss a hare. We're not told the distance of how far away that hare is, but still they won't miss a hare. So you've got 26,700 people of Benjamin and we have 400,000 people, verse 17 tells us, all men who drew the sword, all these were men of war. Ultimately, the battle is going to be 360,000 because if you remember, 10% of the 400 was given to get supplies. So 360,000 men, all from Israel, that are going to fight against 26,700 men in Benjamin. We see here, uh, we're going to finish this out next week in verses 18 all the way through the end of chapter 21. But we're going to see this war is going to escalate and escalate. The civil war is going to get worse and worse and build upon itself. So we began in chapter 19 with a terrible decision by a Levite to take a concubine to himself. And we're going to end in chapter 21 with an entire nation because of that one act. An entire nation at war with itself, almost defeating one of their own tribes. Number one, you cannot say when you look at this that your sin is personal, private, and won't affect anybody else. I, I bet that Levi said that, right? I bet he said, you know what? I know this is probably not the best thing to do, but the, the dad of this woman is okay with this. We made a deal. I gave him some money. We'll be fine. It's not really affecting anybody. If you were to talk to the Levi at the end of chapter 21, 
and say, hey, if you had it to do all over again, would you do the same thing? He would have said, no way. I never knew that that sin was going to snowball into what has happened. And that's the second principle that I think we can glean from chapters 19 through 21. Sin is never satisfied. Sin's never satisfied. Sin never says, you know what, that's enough. Uh, Sin this much and we'll be good. Sin always entices you to sin this much and says, we'll be done here. And then it says, oh, a little bit more, a little bit more. Sin rarely, if ever, holds all of its cards out to you and says, this is exactly what I want to do with your life. Sin just, here's something good that you can enjoy and experience. Here's just a little something. Just, Just take this. All the while holding all the cards of what we know biblically sin wants to do, and that's to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy your soul entirely. So Israel is standing with 400,000 men about to launch into a civil war against one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. We'll look at how that civil war plays itself out next Sunday. But for this Sunday, what are we supposed to do with these sections, these paragraphs, these verses that are just very hard to read, much less try and dive into to figure out what are we supposed to glean from it? I want to give you three points in conclusion, three ways that we can wrap these verses up. Number one, we must remember, we are being taught this morning that sin is violent. Sin is violent. Sin has at its core a desire to overthrow God. Sin has at its core a desire to kill God if we could. It's the Tower of Babel. You remember in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, the people create a tower. They try to make a skyscraper to get into the heavens because they think if we can get high enough, we can get into heaven. Like a Jack and the Beanstalk kind of thing. And then we can find the king who made us and we can kill him so that we can become king. We want to throw off, like Psalm 2 says, our fetters. We don't like the laws of God around us. Let's throw those off. And if we can overthrow and kill the one who made those laws, then we're done away with those laws forever. Sin is violent. Now, we look at this, and Lord willing, we've never been anywhere close to externally what these Gibeonites have done. But maybe we've been like the Levite. Maybe you and I have done things that the Levite did. Or said in another way, maybe we could have prevented things, but we failed to step in. Or maybe like the Levite, unconsciously or consciously, we've been shaped by our culture. So much that our morality, that moral compass that God has given to us is really off. So we don't even know when we should step in. We don't even know really what right and wrong is anymore. The bottom line is we cannot read these verses and allow our pride to grow simply because we're gazing at sin that is far more blatant and far more evil and far more obvious than any sin that we've ever committed. You can't read these verses and say, I'm doing better than I thought. You and I need to realize that the sin that is lived out externally by the Gibeonites the ability to live that out is residing in each and every one of our hearts. And it's but for the grace of God that we are not living out this sin. Sin is cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul used to say. 
It's cosmic treason. It's wanting to overthrow God. And the life of our Savior is the epitome of this. The people didn't like him, so what did they do? They killed him. When Jesus showed up on the scene, they did not say, you are our master and we love you and we receive you. They say, we want to kill you. So don't let these verses remind you that sin is violent, but externally so, that somehow sin's bad for these people, and, and this is something that should not have happened, but I'm doing okay. Everybody has that struggle with comparing themselves with somebody else and thinking, I'm not that bad. I'll never forget um, a, a pastor friend of mine used to do a prison ministry out here before he moved to Virginia, and he told me a story one time where he was sharing the gospel in this prison ministry with inmates, and he realized that every time he would tell people about the gospel, one of the things that he was always told by these inmates was, man, so-and-so down the hall needs to hear that message because they're really bad and they need to repent. And he, he started lining up. He, he would go down to death row. He would talk to inmates on death row that had done despicable, abominable acts like the Gibeonites. And even then, they weren't saying, this is what I needed to hear. This is absolutely necessary for me. I repent. They were saying, man, that's a good message and so-and-so needs to hear it because I'm not as bad as so-and-so. There's always somebody worse down the line. And I think that this passage is given to us this morning to remind us that sin is violent. Your sin in your heart right now. But for the grace of God restraining the evil that's in your heart, we would look just like this. Sin is violent. Number two, sin demands punishment. Sin demands punishment. Even with the moral compass being completely shattered for the Israelites, they still say, this is wrong. They still gather an army to say, give us those men so we can destroy them. And their vengeance is going to go a little bit too far, but they're, with zero moral compass, they're able to say, we know that that was wrong. Imagine with God's moral compass, a perfect compass, always pointing to true north perfectly holy. Imagine how we look. Some people, some people throw around a gospel, in, I say that in quotes, a gospel that sounds like you're not really as bad as you think you are. You're better than you think you are. And you can do a lot. God's just going to get you the rest of the way home. You're not that bad. And God will do work. Yes, he died on the cross to save you and to forgive you, but you're really not that bad. Some people say, God grades on a curve. God will let you off with a warning. That's not what grace is. And if we buy into that gospel, if we buy into that false gospel, we forget that sin demands to be punished. No, it's not going to be a timeout. It's going to be violent. For as violent as our sin is, the punishment is equally as violent. We cannot stand before a holy God and just expect him to look the other way. With such wickedness residing in our own souls and the violence of our own sin, it demands a punishment. That leads to three, point number three, and finally, Jesus was violently punished for our sin. Jesus was violently punished for our sin. Our sin is violent. It's evil, it's wicked, and it demands to be punished, and God punished Jesus 
in our place so that we wouldn't have to bear that punishment. And he didn't just give Jesus a slap on the wrist, as it were. He didn't give Jesus a time out. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There can't be forgiveness of sin unless violent punishment is given to violent offenders. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God said, on the day that you eat of that fruit of the tree, you will die. And on the day that they ate, they did not die. I know we say in theological circles, well, they, they died spiritually. And yes, that's true. But they were supposed to die physically. And God said, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to kill something else. And we know he killed an animal. And he kills the animal in place of Adam and Eve. And then he clothes them with the, that animal skin to show them you deserve to die like that animal did, but I'm giving you a covering made from the death of somebody else so that you can go free. You don't have to die. You see, friends, violence is at the center of the cross. We read these verses and we think this is a little bit more than we can handle, but just go to the cross. Violence is at the center of the cross. Turn to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us, you know in verse 23, we've all sinned. We've all sinned. We've all done what's wrong. We've all missed the glory of God. We were supposed to be perfect, but we failed to be perfect. And we're justified, verse 24, as a gift. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 24. We're justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And we can stop there and, and think, we've sinned, we've messed up, but God's just given us grace. How have we been given that grace? Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction or a payment made in his blood. We are not let off the hook. God does not turn a blind eye to our sin. God sees every sinful act that we live out and God says, you deserve death and I'm going to pour out that punishment onto my son so that you don't have to bear it. In Judges 19 through 20, the Levite hacks up the body of his concubine, his degraded, murdered concubine, and sends her body parts out into the land to say, this is what your sin cost. When we look to the cross, we see the exact same thing. We look to the cross and we see this is what our sin cost. Old Testament, it's a Levite hacking the body of a woman up. New Testament, it's God our Father pouring out his just wrath on Jesus and hacking his body up, as it were, on the cross. We stare at Jesus, his beaten, bloodied body on the tree to see what our sin costs. We see the violence of our sin, what our sin has done. That's why we sing songs like How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It was my sin that held him there. He didn't deserve that punishment. I did, and he died in my place. Why did all of this happen? Why did Jesus die in our place? Because the Father's love is so amazingly deep. How deep the Father's love for us, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's amazing love. That's amazing grace. So as we stare at the violence of our own sin, as we stare at the punishment that's necessary because of our sin, we stare very quickly, we move very quickly to the punishment that was poured out on Jesus at the cross. 
so that we can be forgiven. It's like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. If you weren't there, you missed an amazing testimony, just absolutely mind-blowing of the sovereignty of God being a rock for this precious dear sister's life in the midst of unbelievable devastation. It was just uh, amazing. And she quoted at the end of this, uh, David Pallison in his book, uh, God's, uh, God's Sovereignty and God's Grace in Our Suffering. She quotes him and goes through three levels of questions. At first, when we read something like Judges 19, we say, God, why would you allow this? The first question we typically ask is, God, why are you allowing this? Why are you letting this, to ha- letting this happen? And then as we see God's character, as we see the promises in Scripture that we sang, your plans are not to harm us, not to crush us. They're for our good and to give us a hope and a future. Then we start asking the second why question. Why have you saved me? At first we say, God, why did you allow this? And then we realize our own sinful depravity. And we say, God, why did you even step in to save me? If we move too quickly from our own depravity, our sinful violence, we don't really want to look at that. We just move on. And we won't be undone at the cross. We'll think, yeah, we're not that bad anyway. Thanks, God, for saving me, but I wasn't really that bad. That's why I think it's necessary for us to go through the book of Judges, to be reminded we're just as wicked on the inside. So we start asking at the beginning, God, why are you allowing any of this? Then we ask God, why would you even save me? I've done nothing to earn that or deserve that. I know my sin. Why would you save me? And that leads us, once we understand the love of God and we understand the love that we have in Jesus Christ, that leads us to the third and most unimaginable questions that we can ask, which is, God, why not me? Why not allow me to go through suffering? If I can be a testimony to the grace of God in the midst of such depravity, why not let me go through it to tell others, oh, you're good. You allow things that are awful for the purpose of bringing about things that are amazing. Just look at the cross. God the Father allowed the murder of his son, which I think is the worst section in all of Scripture. It's Good Friday for us. It was awful Friday for Jesus. But God allowed that to bring about that which he loves, which is the salvation of souls. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us bringing many sons and daughters to glory. So, may we understand the violence of our own sin. May we understand that sin demands punishment. May we look to the punishment that was given to Jesus so that you and I can go free. And I I, I have to ask you, have you turned rejecting all of your own goodness, your own ability, quote-unquote, to get to God on your own? Have you rejected an idea of some spiritual karma that, yeah, you've done bad things, but... Your good will outweigh your bad. That's not a saving gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died the righteous and just for the unrighteous and unjust to bring us to God. If you think you had any level of justice inside of you that would enable you to get to heaven, then you don't need Jesus and you'll reject him. Have you rejected yourself, your own sinful depravity, your own man-made righteousness and clung to Jesus 
by faith. No, your, your good works will not get you to heaven. Jesus' good work on your behalf is the only way you'll get to heaven. So cling to him by faith this day. Renounce all of your sin and turn to Christ. Cling to him by faith and understand the depth of his love for you. And may that deliver you. May that change your affections, your appetites, your desires, your loves, your hopes, your dreams. Everything will change once you truly understand how deep the Father's love truly is for you and for me. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. Undone by mercy, undone by your amazing love, we are blown away that sinners as vile and as wicked as us could be saved. And so, Father, we come before you and we we weep in our own depravity, knowing that it was my sin that held Christ there. He did it for me. Why should I gain? Why should I benefit when all I offered in the transaction of salvation is my own sin that made it necessary? Father, we come to you just undone. May we hate our sin. May we be sober-minded about our sin, not coddle it, not play around with it, not treat it lightly. May we treat it the same way you did. And as we stare at the cross, we see what you did with it. And Father, may that propel us onward to understand your amazing grace, your amazing kindness, the riches of love that you would lavish on us. You are worthy of all of our praise, all of our adoration. How deep the 